These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. When we last left the Hittites, we saw them technically defeated at the Battle of Kadesh by possibly the greatest pharaoh in Egyptian history, Ramesses II. Great King Muatali, though, had put up a good fight and managed to prevent the Egyptians from actually taking the town of Kadesh, much less pushing any further into Hittite territory. We can see this as a pretty solid showing by the great king. He had dictated when and where battle would be joined, inflicted outsized casualties on his opponent, stymied the pharaoh's advance, and even managed to hold the contested town. In terms of pride, however, it was Ramesses who would be able to claim to have won the day, and who would get to boast on the walls of multiple major temples throughout Egypt of his victory. And for a Bronze Age king, pride is at least as important as the strategic situation. Unlike the pharaoh, Muatali was not the sort to vent his anger on his subordinates. Or if he was, he didn't uh, record himself doing it. Looking around for a reason that he lost, and unwilling to simply accept the fortunes of battle had turned against him despite a fairly well-developed plan, the great king's gaze settled upon the vassal kingdom of Amaru. Now, Amaru lay just a bit northwest of Kadesh, and was possibly related to those Amorites who had been such a powerful force around the year 2000 BCE, though these, of course, are very distantly related descendants of those Amorites. Amaru had been taken by force of arms by Ramesses' father, Seti I. Despite the fact that these tiny kingdoms had no real way to resist the armies of the great powers, Muatali considered this a betrayal of the Hittite kingdom, and portrays the Amorites as having gleefully leapt into the arms of the Egyptians, rather than having been conquered. This is a bit unfair, but great kings are not always fair. Anyway, the year's again 1274 BCE, and Ramesses has brought his army back down to Egypt, the great battle having ended. Muatali still had his army in the Levant, however, and had the opportunity to strike at targets of opportunity. Egyptian vassals who would not be defended with their pharaoh's main host now absent. The region of Abba, around the modern city of Damascus, was one target, and Muatali gave the city over to his brother Hattushili, who had been in command of the defense of the north and was by now accumulating a remarkable little power base within the country, concerning certain courtiers that he may become a focal point of rebellion. Muatali then marched over to the country of Amaru and beat the tar out of them, enslaving many of the people and taking the king Bentenshina captive. King Bentenshina protested over this quite unjust treatment, but his protests were ignored by Muatali. Muatali's brother, however, Hattushili, happened to hear about all of this and requested that the captive king be given over to him. Now, it seems for some reason, Muatali can apparently refuse his brother nothing. And in short order, Bendishina was freed and given command of another city in Hattushili's northern domain, the northern capital town of Hakpis. 
With Hattusili in command of both the northern and southern borders against the two most salient threats to the empire, the Kassites in the north and the Egyptians in the south, it would seem that the king's brother is uniquely well-placed to assert his will at this point. But he continues to serve loyally, doing his part to protect and expand the borders where he can. For the next two years after the Battle of Kadesh, cities in Egyptian held Canaan, likely encouraged by the pharaoh's failure to win a strategic victory, and probably also by secret promises from Hattusili, began to revolt against Egyptian rule. It's likely that Hattusili stayed down in the south for most of these two years. But while the job of stabilizing the border against the expansionist pharaoh and the squirmy vassal kings was important, Hattusili's physical absence from the northern Kaskin front appears to have emboldened that long-time enemy. Hattusili had actually managed to make remarkable strides up north. Some of that was his ability to enact dedicated military campaigns without having to worry about the responsibilities of the wider empire. But in addition to that, he and his brother, the great king, instituted a new northern plan, one of limited peace and cooperation with certain Kaskin groups. The Kaskins, like all nomadic ethnicities, were never really a unified foe. Rather, they lived in tribal communities, some of which were more hostile than others. By engaging with the Kaskins as people rather than as faceless enemies, Hattusili was able to get a sense of the differences between the different communities, identifying some as possible allies and confirming others as unbending enemies. The communities identified as allies were permitted to make treaties of friendship with the Hittite kingdom and allowed limited economic access to the Hittite markets. Thus pacified, the remaining groups were easier to combat, since there were less of them, and they operated over more restricted territories. While the hostile groups continued to try and depopulate the region for their own benefit, Hattusili was able to continue and expand the repopulation programs begun by his father, Mershili II, incorporating local friendly Kaskins and finally rebuilding some major cities, including the holy city of Narek, which had long been lost to the northern enemy. However, even these friendly groups were not integrated to the extent that other ethnicities routinely were in the empire. The Hittites had, from the very first day, freely incorporated a diverse array of ethnic and linguistic groups, reflecting the great diversity of peoples within Anatolia and later in the places that the Hittites conquered. Even while the Mitanni were a major threat, the Hurrian people, who made up the majority of the Mitanni kingdom, were still permitted to enter, trade, and settle within Hittite borders. The Kaskins, however, had shown themselves to be deeply uncivilized in a way that even the desert nomads were not, and even the friendly groups were kept under much tighter control and far more restrictions than we see from any other group. This is a perhaps unusual example of racism from the usually quite tolerant and cosmopolitan Hittite Empire, and will come to restrict the effectiveness of Hattusili's social policies. 
Though, of course, the Hittites themselves would not call it racism. They would call it a rational response to a people who have proved themselves incapable and unworthy of civilization. Perhaps the Hittites were right, and the Kaskans were simply ungovernable. Perhaps the Kaskans had genuine grievances against Hattushili and a strong independent streak. Whatever the case, while Hattushili was in the south, assisting with the Battle of Kadesh and its aftermath, the Kaskans again revolted and caused a great deal of destruction in the north. Details are scarce here, but Hattushili appears to have petitioned his brother, the great king, to be allowed to return to the north and deal with all of this. Muatali, meanwhile, judged the southern threats most pressing and kept Hattushili there for either 18 months or two years, but then allowed him to return. Hattushili left a substantial garrison in the south, there were still serious threats there even if the Egyptians had turned their attention to other fronts at the moment and traveled north. But there was a stop he needed to make along the way before he attended to the northern disaster. You see, Hattushili was the youngest of the sons of King Mershili II, and he had been born a very sickly child. It was widely expected that he would not survive childhood, which was a tragic, though sadly not uncommon, fate for even the infants of the royal house. The requisite prayers and healing had, of course, been attempted, but nothing was effective. That is, nothing until one night the goddess Ishtar sent to King Mershili a dream, stating that if Hattushili was consecrated as a priest to Ishtar and given over to the goddess, then he would be healed. Now, we may not put much stock in such things nowadays, but for the Hittites, the commands of the gods were not to be ignored. The baby was put into the care of the goddess, and the infant who had not been expected to chi survive childhood will manage to live an exceedingly long time, perhaps even into his 80s, depending on how you date everything. His entire life, therefore, he was a priest of Ishtar, and alongside his royal duties, he held numerous titles within the temple, and appears to have been personally deeply pious, grateful to the goddess for his apparent salvation. And so, on his northern trip, he felt obligated, both formally and personally, to stop by the Kizawatnan city of Lawazantia, an increasingly significant cult center to Hattushili's patron goddess. There he prayed, sacrificed, and spoke to his patron goddess. The goddess Ishtar commanded Hattushili to marry a priestess from the shrine, a lady named Puduhepa, and thus guided by the goddess of passion, the two fell in love very quickly. Puduhepa will come to play a significant role in years to come, likely earning herself the title of most significant woman in Hittite history, not that she really has all that much competition there, but for now she is a newly wedded woman, traveling to the likely quite frightening and exotic Anatolian Northlands with her husband. When Hattushili and Puduhepa arrived in the northern capital of Hakpis, hoping to settle in and deal with the crisis, they found that things had progressed in their absence. The city of Hakpis was in full revolt, and offered no sanctuary for its rightful overlord. 
And so, with no base of operations, Hadushili was forced to roam the countryside to raise his levies and augment his small professional force, then to beat back the raging Cascans out of the cities he'd spent the last 20 years reclaiming and rebuilding. This was accomplished quickly, all things considered, though it isn't clear how quickly. This actually becomes an important part later. And then he moved to surround his capital of Hakpis. When Hattushili had been appointed governor of Hakpis, along with large chunks of northern territory, this appointment had been at the expense of an assortment of existing governors, who had spent the last 20 years agitating against Hattushili in the old capital of Hattusha, and as well as at the new capital of Tarhuntasha. Hattushili's absence, as well as the Kaskan uprising, had convinced these resentful nobles to take their places back, and the former governor of Hakpis, a man named Arma Tarhunda, led the revolt and had holed up behind the walls of Hakpis. Now, the siege must have been quick, and Hattushili was able to reassert his authority. But when he reached the chamber of the rebel leaders, he showed mercy on them allowing Armitar Hunda and his son Sipaziti to go free. This after they not only rebelled, but had also sent black magic witchcraft against Hattushili. He even allowed Armitar Hunda and family to retain half of their estate for a comfortable exile. This was likely an act of mercy in honor of Hattushili's patron goddess, but he doesn't really explain why he takes such an unexpectedly generous course with these men. Traditional history says all this is completed by the time Muatali dies in 1272, three years after his accomplishments in the Battle of Kadesh. However, if Hattushili was still attempting to reclaim the Northlands, it would explain some of the lingering questions around Muatali's succession. But, we can't go killing off Muatali just yet, for he does one thing of significance in the three years between the Battle of Kadesh and his death from natural causes. You see, a Hittite queen called Tawanana remained queen in even until her death, even if her husband dies first. Now, we saw this cause problems in the reign of Muatali's father, where the previous king's wife continued to exert a decadent and unwanted influence on the court for decades. Similarly, Mershali's last wife, Danuhepa, was still alive and relevant past the Battle of Kadesh, 30 years after her husband had died, despite the fact that Muatali appears to have had a great deal of personal friction with her. We have multiple sources for the trial, but none of them want to discuss specifically what happened. And indeed, both of the next two kings would write prayers to the gods disavowing any connection with the actions that Muatali took against Danuhepa. All we know for sure is that at some point near the end of Muatali's life, the Tawanana Danuhepa was put on trial for crimes including blasphemy. Now, the Tawanana had many religious responsibilities, so blasphemy could be anything from a slight mistake during a ritual that gets seized upon as a pretext, all the way to practicing black magic against the king and nation. And so the charge of blasphemy actually tells us very little. 
the core of the trial appears to have been political. Danohepa had some sort of power base and was attempting to influence policy, probably in a direction that Muatali did not like. It may be that the succession was an open question, even this late, since a son of Muatali named Urhi Teshub was the king's favorite, while she may have been trying to get one of her own sons on the throne. Or, perhaps Muatali and Denehepa personally hated each other, and the rivalry spilled out into something bigger. These aren't, of course, mutually exclusive options, but whatever the case, the fact remains that we know only three salient facts. One is that Denehepa was exiled to a comfortable villa, either just before or just after the Battle of Kadesh, and stripped of her title. Second is that Urhi Teshub would be officially named as Muatali's heir. Third, is that another of Muatali's sons, Olmi Teshub, would be sent to live with Muatali's brother Hachishili, where he could learn the business of governing from his uncle, and presumably be safe from the political dealings of the capital, or perhaps make the capital safe from his and his mother's political dealings. Then, in 1272, Muatali dies of old age, after about three decades on the throne. Now, despite Muatali's best efforts, the succession is still far from clear. Urhi Teshub is the designated heir, but he's only the son of a second-rate lesser wife or concubine, not the first-rank son of a full first-rank wife. Uh, Muatali's first-rank wife never did seem to produce any living children. Under Telepanu's succession laws laid down over two centuries ago, but now fully in force, it is possible for a second-rate son to inherit, but only when there are no better claims to the throne. Muatali had no first-rank sons, but he did still have a brother. Hatushili, who had been a first-rank son of the previous king, Mershali II. What's more, Hatushili had a boatload of titles and accomplishments to his name, and had made something of a career as a holy man, and had been functioning as co-king in the north for decades now, while Uri Teshub appears to have been a spoiled child with a somewhat thinner resume. And so the question was raised as to which of these two men should more rightly be king. And it really does appear that the Hittite Empire could have split itself apart at this very moment in history, had the situation been only a little bit different. However, I suspect that at the precise moment of Muatali's death, his brother Hattushili was busy reclaiming his northern empire from Kaskans and rebels, perhaps involved in the recapture of his northern capital, Hakpis. And thus, Uri Teshub was able to take the throne with little conflict, informing his uncle of what had already happened and receiving Hattushili's blessing in return. Hattushili, for himself, records for history that he granted his nephew the throne, but it seems most likely that he was simply assenting to what was, by this point, already fait accompli. With the cloud of his more accomplished uncle hanging over his head, Urhi Teshub took the throne and renamed himself Mershali III. 
It really isn't clear how many of these kings take throne names upon acceding to the throne, and how many keep their birth names throughout history. With Urhiteshub, much of his story is narrated by his uncle, who seems uninterested in acknowledging the new king's throne name or authority any more than he has to. And so we have the before and after here, whereas most kings, both in the Hittite Empire and throughout Mesopotamia, only reach the written record once they take the throne. So who really knows? Anyway, Uriteshub, the new King Mershili, began his reign much the way his father had, by apologizing to the gods for all the mistakes his father had made. First up, the woman Denuhepa was reinstated as Tawanana, and prayers were offered to the gods insisting that Uriteshub had no idea why his father had ever removed her. Then, the capital was moved from Muwatali's new city of Tarhuntasha back to the traditional capital of Hattusha, and here again the new Mershili disclaimed all involvement in his father's decision. In both of these, it seems he was supported by Hattushili, who believed that both the capital shift and the trial against the Tawanana had been offensive to the gods. After this, though, tensions will begin to strain between the two. From the evidence we have, it appears that Uri Teshub's reign was dominated by personnel shoveling. Uri Teshub gave patronage to Sipaziti, the son who maintained a claim on Hattusheli's northern capital of Hakpis. He took Benteshina, who had formerly been the king of Amaru before irritating Muatali, took him from his positioner as governor under Hattushili's patronage, and returned him to kingship in Amaru. He made a number of other moves along these same lines with minor characters, but the common thread through all of it is that Urhiteshub clearly had some idea of the political realities he faced, and intended to shore up his position as king by bringing as many people into his patronage network as possible, while stripping powers from the vassals loyal to Hattushili. Now, it's difficult to compare the chronologies of different nations at this point in time, but it's likely that here was the point when the Hittite Empire was first humiliated by the Assyrians, which would start happening more frequently as we near the day of final collapse. The Mitanni rump state, now a part of the growing Assyrian Empire, decided to rebel against their overlord and called upon Hittite aid to do so. We've covered this in the Assyrian section, though there really isn't too much detail about the whole event. Essentially, a combined force of Mitanni, Hurrian natives, and Hittite reinforcements met up to go to battle against Adad-Nirari of Assyria and free the Mitanni heartland. This combined force, however, was crushed utterly by Assyrian military might. This was a completely optional military engagement for the Hittite Empire, and it was the young king's first big test which he failed miserably. It's likely that after this blow to his prestige, he began to move all the more towards undermining his uncle, lest his vassals start to think about replacing him with someone a bit more experienced. 
While the young king was playing these personnel and diplomatic games, Hattusili was loudly proclaiming his loyalty to his nephew, to everyone who would listen, and insisting that the two were working very closely together on all government matters. Indeed, this may have even been true at the beginning, with the deeply pious Hattusili taking the circumstances elevating Uri Teshub to the throne as the inscrutable will of the gods, as well as the will of the deceased Muatali, who he had been, remember, very loyal to up until his death. However, as the years passed, the new king took ever bolder steps to shore up his power relative to his incredibly powerful uncle, eventually stripping Hattusili of his holdings, town by town. And yet despite this, Hattusili still kept the peace for the good of the nation, until he was reduced to his two most central and important bastions, the northern capital of Hakpis and the deeply holy and only recently recovered city of Narek. Then, Around the year 1267, King Mershali III, Urhi Teshub, strips Hattusili of these cities as well. The young king was wagering that he had pulled enough courtiers into his orbit that Hattusili could not dare to contest him. Hattusili, for his part, declares that there was simply nothing left for him to do but to leave the conflict in the hands of the gods by which he meant in the hands of his personal army, who then marched on Hattusha to face whatever armies the untested king was able to muster. Much of the north and much of the Hittite professional army joins Hattusili's rebellion, as do far more vassals than Uri Teshub seems to have anticipated. We have no details to tell us why the king's effort to bring vassals to his side and away from Hattusili's side failed, but in his inexperience, he may have been quite clumsy with his assignments. Or perhaps Hattusili just had such a reputation and so many decades of experience at this point that there was simply no way the younger king could win in the political arena, no matter how he tried. Interestingly, Hattusili appears to have also called up a few of the supposedly friendly Kaskin tribes, but these either deserted him during the campaign or never showed up at all. Hattusili was not impressed by this, but was busy for the moment. Anyway, the long and short of it is that Hattusha was taken by Hattusili, but not before Uri Teshub was able to flee. There appears to have been a somewhat extensive little civil war throughout Anatolia, which ended probably pretty quickly with Uri Teshub cornered in the holy city of Samuha. But even this last outpost fell before Hattusili's greater skill and resources. After five years on the throne, and having spent nearly all of it planning for this day, King Urhi Teshub, Mershali III, reign ended in defeat as he was dragged off in chains to his newly crowned uncle's court. But Hattusili, as mentioned, was a deeply pious man. The gods have given him this victory and this crown, but it would still be sacrilegious and technically illegal to murder his own close relative. And so in a remarkable show of charity, Uri Teshub was not only not put to death, but actually given a governorship to rule over on behalf of the Hittite Empire. 
It wasn't the most plum assignment ever, but he was made Lord of Nuhashi, down in Syria, which meant he was not only a subject, but a second-tier subject, reporting not even to the king directly, but one of the viceroys down in Aleppo and Karchemish. It did have two advantages for him, however. Syria was a particularly wealthy land, even after all that fighting that never seemed to stop down there. And also, it's quite far away from the capital. This was an exile for sure, but one that came with its own power base and would be difficult for his uncle to monitor. Urhi Teshub took advantage of his uncle's charity as soon as he felt secure, sending off diplomats to conduct his own personal diplomacy with Babylon and Assyria, and possibly Egypt as well, presenting himself as the proper Hittite king and requesting aid against the usurper. This, naturally, was a big no-no. And, though he seems to have gotten some lukewarm responses from the Babylonians, Hattusheli found out about his little treasonous pen-pal circle before it could get off the ground. Uri Teshub was then apprehended and sent uh, somewhere, possibly to the kingdom of Alasha on the island of Cyprus, which at some point in the last century had sort of wandered into the Hittite sphere of influence, at least in a somewhat loose way. However, the young Uri Teshub either never made it to his Cypriot vacation home, or stayed only a very short time before absconding to the one place that his uncle could definitely not touch him, the court of the Egyptian pharaoh Ramesses II. Nahatushili naturally wrote to the pharaoh, asking for the little scamp to be sent on back to Hattusha. But the imperious Ramesses the Great, already well on his way towards earning the reputation that will echo through the ages, had no interest in this arrangement. Then Hattusheli wrote to the Babylonian king Kadashman Turgu, complaining of this and asking Babylon to join in an anti-Egyptian alliance, which seems to have been accepted, though very little was done about it because Kadashman Turgu would die the following year. Though the Babylonians were keeping this all in the realm of words, the Hittite-Egyptian border seems to have been heating up, and people were distinctly worried about a second great Hittite-Egyptian conflict, less than a decade after the first. Now, some modern historians will tut-tut all this and insist that the possibility of a war at this point was actually quite remote, given that both sides had been quite thoroughly spent by the Battle of Kadesh and the conflict since then. But even though neither side could probably have afforded a war, and neither side appears to have wanted a war, that doesn't mean they didn't both believe war was imminent at this point. And so, Ramesses did not quite kick Urhi Teshub out of the land of the Nile, but he made it clear to the young ex-king that he would no longer be welcome in the pharaoh's court. For a Near Easterner, there's really only one way out of Egypt. You're not going to go south, you're not going to go west. And though we aren't completely clear where Uri Teshub went after this, he most likely crossed into the Sinai, into the deserts of Syria. My guess is he was hoping to hire Ahlamu or Habiru mercenaries to continue his crusade to restore his throne. Meanwhile, the correspondence between Ramesses and Hattushili over the matter of Urhi Teshub continued, uh, 
except that between each letter was, of course, months of delays and travel time. Even Hattusili's wife, Queen Pudahepa, wrote appeals to the pharaoh. However, when Ramesses' letters made it back to Hattusha, it was learned that Ramesses could not give the ex-king back to Hattusili because Urhiteshub was no longer in Egypt. Instead, it seems that a massive <clears throat> miscommunication occurred somewhere, and the man was let free. The pharaoh's letter in which he recounts the sequence of events is badly damaged, but from what we can tell, it seems that Ramesses had agreed to cooperate in finding the runaway Urhiteshem, and so Hattusili had sent one of his own sons, Prince Nerakaili, down to Egypt to lead the effort and coordinate with Egyptian officials. However, somewhere in the Levant, Prince Nerakaili had come across Urhiteshub on his way to Egypt and taken him captive, retiring with prisoner to one of the towns of the Levant. Then, in the process of writing a letter to his father, informing Hattusili of Urhiteshub's capture, the young prince appears to have died from completely unknown causes, though in a twist of fate, Nerakaili's death seems to be unrelated to anything Urhiteshub did. With his captor dead, Urhiteshub was able to bribe his guards and escape back into the desert. At least, that's one story. There is another story which suggests that Nerakaili in fact lived a long and prosperous life after this, but was so disgraced by his failure to either capture or hold on to Uriteshub that he essentially falls out of the written record at this point. But Nerakaili's tale will have to wait for another time. The matter of Uriteshub's stay in Egypt, followed by his ultimate disappearance, would strain relations between the great powers severely, and see a remarkable exchange of insults that could well have brought the region to war. But we'll get to that. In the meantime, Uriteshub vanishes from our histories as he disappears out into the desert, and for quite some time the fate of this once king was unknown. Indeed, it still may well be unknown, but recent archaeology has uncovered a handful of suggestive clues as to where he may have gone. In the Konya Plain of southern Anatolia, on a mountain now called Karadag, there is an archaeological site whose name in the ancient world is unknown. There it's claimed that a certain great king Hartapu, son of great king Mershali, ruled an independent kingdom in the final decades of the Hittite Empire. Though the dating is difficult, and many of the details are circumstantial at best, it's quite possible that Uriteshub found himself atop of this mountain, within some fortress town with a corps of mercenaries and loyal soldiers, and was eventually able to establish for himself a Hittite kingdom in exile, which he would pass on to his own son, and last until the end of Hittite civilization in general. While this surely must have been a great source of shame and irritation for the king Hattusili, the young Mershali, wherever he went, was never able to successfully challenge his uncle for the throne. Meanwhile, Hattusili would enjoy some 25 years, or perhaps 30, of presiding over the glorious sunset of the Hittite Empire, encountering plenty of little adventures along the way. So join us next time as we witness 
the most influential woman in Hittite history, and watch as an imminent war transforms into a solid and honorable peace that will last until the end of the Hittite Empire. Thank you for listening.